What's up, guys? Welcome to the Establish the Edge podcast. I'm your host, Pat Crane. With me is my co-host, Mike Leone of EstablishTheRun.com. Mike, how's it going? It's going pretty well. Kind of a wild week for DFS, uh, you know, with some injuries and whatnot and just a weird slate. So I'm getting ready for that, but excited to talk to you about some more macro big picture fantasy strategy, kind of branching out to all areas of fantasy, regardless of what you play. Yeah, we're recording this on Friday, and it is quite a interesting slate. Uh, we were talking about that, and I'm very excited to hear uh, the show tonight. I'm excited to hear you and Dink on Saturday. It's going to be I'm going to need all the uh, all the advice and and insight that you guys are going to provide on that. We're going to touch on DFS in the show a little bit, but more from a macro perspective, and we're going to be kind of doing a little bit of a deep dive type of episode again, like we did a couple weeks back. On correlation, this one being kind of on uncertainty, how to un- how to handle uncertainty in, in fantasy football, not just in DFS, but across like all the types of, of fantasy football. Because I think one of the interesting parts of this discussion is that sometimes you want to you know handle things a bit differently if you're looking at even like in season, if you're looking at DFS versus dynasty versus redraft, you might actually want to take slightly different approaches because we are ultimately playing a little bit of a different game there. So that's going to be the topic of the day. And I kind of already teased this where we, the first thing in kind of understand, understanding uncertainty in fantasy football is that we are playing a game. This is not, you know, we're not just like picking good football players. There's rules to these leagues, to these tournaments, whatever, And you're trying to score the most points within these rules. So that's kind of the, the key thing. And I, you know, it's sort of obvious, but it's also maybe something that people don't incorporate enough into their thinking. Right, Mike? Absolutely. I mean, bringing into DFS too, talking to Peter Overset, this things people love to talk about each week are sometimes these little golden nuggets that they research that they think are going to, show them the way as to who's going to perform well that week. You know, uh, you know, people really like to get into the nitty gritty type stuff and get very micro on things that probably when you zoom out, aren't moving the needle a whole ton as to whether you're going to win or lose when, and, and sometimes you're doing a lot of grunt work that someone else quite frankly could do better and save you the time. Now, some of, some of doing that and finding something that nobody else can find is fun. So I'm not saying not to do that, but you do need to take a step back and think about, okay, how do I really win the game? Is it going to be me understanding exactly how this defense is going to guard a certain receiver? Like probably not, you know, over the long run, that's probably not, you might get lucky once or twice identifying that correctly, but over the long run, it's probably going to come down to, Oh, macro, you know, how much ceiling do I have in my lineup relative to ownership type thing in DFS? And then bringing it back to season long, it's a similar thing where we feel like at the draft, let's, let's win the draft and have this awesome starting lineup. And that's not really how you're winning the game is by having the best starting lineup after the draft. And I think a lot of people think that's the goal and that's not necessarily the goal. And when they think about the best starting lineup, the mistakes they're making are one, they're thinking about median projections that are distributed 
we don't know how, maybe uniformly throughout the year. Whereas when you look at how the game's played, you really need breakout players. You want guys who could break out the latter half of the season. You do care how those points are distributed, especially in a redraft league with playoffs. You know, you want a super team come playoff time. You want to plan around breakouts, busts, and injuries. Those things are going to happen. Whereas the person who's just drafting their starting lineup to be best as possible and then grabbing like a backup everywhere, you know, that's not how fantasy football actually works over the course of a season. It might be nice theoretically, but in practice, it means nothing. Yeah, I think that, you know, to to talk about this in like redraft, um, there's there's a huge disconnect, I think, on what we're even trying to do on draft day. And this gets into like a lot of the zero running back stuff, but it's not it's not about zero running back versus it's not about when you draft your running backs. It's about what the draft mindset even is because you get when you when you draft like like I draft you get a bunch of crap afterwards saying like who's your running back two or oh man your running back two is Ronald Jones and it's like well maybe for a couple weeks but like my running back two might be on waivers right now and even when okay so like this let me just let me just give you guys a couple teams here because these are teams that are doing very well in the FFPC main event both these teams are currently the one seed in the main event um the first team is one that me and pete Overzet have with another high stakes player crack rock we went derrick henry austin eckler dj moore odo beckham keenan allen stefan diggs to start then we went four tight ends we got josh allen in the 11th we got jamal williams in the 17th and basically everything else has been cut i think literally every other pick from the team after Josh eleven, Josh Allen in the eleventh, um, and besides Jamal Williams in the seventeenth was cut from the back end, which is going to be pretty typical. Even though we fall in love with the guys in this range, that's one of the more fun aspects of drafting teams. You get excited about all these guys. I think it's a good thing to just like look at your drafts and remind yourself that like, oh yeah, every single one of these guys was a low percentage dart throw in this range of the draft, and most of them have been churned off of your roster at this point Mm -hmm. and really the reason this team is doing so well and this team is top 75 in the main event is because we hit on keenan allen in the fifth stefan diggs in the sixth derrick henry has been solid enough and that allowed us to survive a total whiff on odo beckham dj moore being disappointing in the third austin eckler not you know missing most of the season and we got miles gaskin off waiver We've got Chase Claypool off waivers. We have crushed waivers. So really, this team is a success story on waivers with two huge hits in Allen and Diggs at wide receiver and then Josh Allen in the 11th. Yeah, and you talk about your bench and how you've dropped almost everyone on your bench throughout the year. And a lot of people, when they're drafting the bench, all they're thinking of it is, I need a backup at quarterback. I need a backup at tight end. Yeah, that's completely the wrong way to think about it. It's, I need to come up with as many good dart throws as I possibly can, because if one or two hits, it's a big deal and it means a lot for my team. And that's essentially what you've done between drafting the bench, but then churning them over on waivers quickly. It's just compile dart throws and kind of keep your dart throw equity as high as possible. It's not about having, you know, a quote unquote safe backup. 
so I think that's you know a really important distinction. Even aside from the starting lineup tangent, I kind of went on earlier. Uh, how you're constructing your bench, what people think of it as is this thing that makes your team more robust to injury and stuff. That's not really the goal. The goal is to find potential league winners or, you know, and and if you're drafting zero RB, sometimes it is finding fill-ins at running back, but you're not really drafting to get six to eight points at running back. You might take one to two of those guys just so you're not taking zeros early on. But for the most part, you want dart throws that can give you legitimately strong running back points. And you mentioned how you catch flack with these zero RB teams. And I do too, whenever I post them on Twitter and people love what, you know, whether they're playing DFS or season long, they love to be able to point to something tangible and say, you know, this is why I did that. And I got unlucky or whatever. They like to have this built in tangible excuse. And I think for DFS, sometimes the built in tangible excuse might be something like, this guy projected really well and faced a really bad defense. And like, that's the end of the thought process. You know, they don't care if that player is way over owned relative to what he should be. What's more tangible for people is good matchup, good projection. I'm playing that guy, no matter what, if it doesn't work out, I've got this built in excuse um, when they're not really thinking about like, Oh, well, even if it works out, I'm not picking up any points on the field because everyone's playing this player. Or whatever. And in season long, you know, the starting lineup is that tangible rock. You know, they want to be able to say, Oh, look, I, I look good at running back too." you know, to start the year. Yep. And they also care way too much where the points come from. And you and I have touched on this before too, where people, they act like those running back two points sometimes are worth more than the flex. The flex force. points. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're not, <laughs> you know, they, they all count the same. There's no multiplier. You know, this isn't DK showdown with a captain multiplier uh, as you're running yeah. back. There, so. That is true. People do draft like there's a running back to multiplier. <laughs> there's not a running back to multiplier. Yeah. Um, this, this other team that we drafted, you know, I think this goes exactly the point you're making about, you know, drafting backups. Um, we took Carson Wentz in this, in this draft of the 12th round, we did, we paired it with Boston Scott in the 11th, Jalen Rager in the 10th. That all was totally busto by like week three. Right. Mm-hmm. But we have Justin Herbert in this league. Um, we ended up getting Teddy Bridgewater later down the line. We didn't draft Justin Herbert. We didn't, we didn't know, you know, Justin Herbert wasn't going to play originally. Right. And so we didn't take a backup quarterback in this league. Our backup, our, our main quarterback was a total bust and it just hasn't mattered because we knew that we were, that we weren't wearing a condom here with quarterback. And so we were very quick to act when quarterback, when a quarterback became available. And I think sometimes that's maybe more important, like put yourself out there a little bit to where you're going, what do I need to be looking for on waivers? I need to be looking for quarterback upside when it becomes available. It became available, we jumped on it, and we've been riding Herbert, and it's been great. But not taking that backup quarterback allowed us to take a few more shots. We got Jarek McKinnon here in the 16th. You know, and I'd much rather have Jarek McKinnon in the 16th than, you know, Jared Goff or Jimmy Garoppolo or some of these other quarterbacks who were going yeah. in that range. So um, I think, you know, identifying like what you're shooting for. We took Mark Andrews in the second here. We took TJ Hawkinson in the eighth and neither one of those has like been a true, true hit just because tight end so gross this year though. 
both of them, I think, you know, are top four, top five tight ends going the rest of the way. <laughs> and so we got, you know, TJ Hawkinson this year counts as a breakout pick in the eighth round. And that was the goal where we, we targeted a tight end who we thought could. I'm not giving you the breakout pick. I'm not giving it to you. Well, I would, <laughs> I still think it's a much better pick than Jared Cook, who went just after, <laughs> um, you know, so you, you, we were targeting, targeting um, yeah. breakout profiles here. So, to the point of we did take a backup, but we're we took it more as this guy could start with Mark Andrews, not back up Mark Andrews. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up and waivers up. I think where I struggle sometimes implementing sort of this, I'm playing a game. What's the best way to win the game? I do pretty well at the draft, but sometimes in waivers, I'm thinking too much about my immediate needs on players. So you mentioned you had Carson Wentz. I probably wouldn't have gambled on Herbert because in my head I would have been like, well, Wentz is fine and I don't really need a backup quarterback. I'll get one when I need one. And, you know, Herbert's probably, you know, he's a rookie. He's probably not going to do that. Well, like all these kind of loser thoughts, it's kind of a loser mentality, right? Where your mentality is we only have one quarterback. We didn't invest a premium pick in it. Let's take a chance on this upside. You know, we can always drop it later um, and, and just churning on the waiver wire upside before it hits is pretty important. You know, that's how you're getting the best use out of your fab dollars. So I, I think hearing you say that, you know, definitely points out to me where I could sometimes, especially at the onesie positions, sometimes I'm afraid or even at wide receiver, cause I'll draft a lot of zero running back heavy teams. And as a result, I'll ignore receiver on the waiver wire sometimes maybe more than I should. That was probably the biggest leak in our game, you know, me and Pete Overzet's game. Like, and we talked about this a lot um, heading into the season of like, we draft a lot of zero running back teams or, or one elite running back team. Um, The one elite running back, if we have a, you know, top five pick, I think is, is the way to go. And that's normally what we do. But what we were realizing is in either of those structures, you're spending a lot of your late round draft capital on running backs. And we were doing that to a fault where we were missing on some of these breakout wide receivers. And we also weren't prioritizing them enough on the waiver wire. And this year, I think we really did a much better job of that. T Higgins became available. um, And I believe in this, yeah, in this league, T Higgins became available and we went real hard on him. Um, We obviously have, we have Chenault everywhere, but we, we got um, Jalen Rager, Wish we had, you know, maybe targeted some different guys. But um, in that Crack Rock League that I talked about before, we added Chase Claypool, and we added Chase Claypool for like twelve dollars out of a thousand because the team was really strong. This was another thing that uh, I think is important. The team was strong, and so we were like, "Hey, what would this team need? What would really take this team to the next level?" a massive wide receiver breakout two or three weeks from now who has a profile like that, you know? And so Pete had identified that someone had dropped Claypool. So we, we like had him in waiting and then we mm-hmm. picked him up cheap before the big breakout came the following week. Cause when you, when a guy drops him on Wednesday, you can't pick them up until the following Wednesday. And so we were able to get him for 12 bucks and that, I think sometimes you can actually compound your advantage when you're 
when you're off to a fast start because then you can go, all right, who are the types of player profiles that are going to give me long-term edges over my opponents and pick them up cheaply? Yeah, it's and it's the same strategy as honestly at the draft. You're saying, I don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be a chaotic season. I want as much upside as possible. So it's sort of dumb of me to basically then week one comes and I'm thinking about things in terms of need and completely differently. You know, I, sh- I shouldn't be turning that light off on the macro approach. And that's the exact it with Claypool where you didn't need them, but you didn't know what was going to happen at receiver over the course of the season. And you get that breakout receiver, even if you were flush at receiver, having a guy who might break out, you know, that that's a good problem to have. And if an injury occurs or something come the end of the year, Claypool could easily be starting for you. So holding that draft mentality through waivers, especially early portion of the year is something that I need to improve on on my game next year. One thing I wanted to ask you about was like, and this is something that I think I'm still struggling with a bit is that is like prioritizing the right pickups, particularly at running back, but really everywhere post week one. Um, Like Miles Gaskin was clearly the ad, but wasn't really the priority ad um, and kind of fell down the the waiver, you know, in in waiver columns post week one because we had the Naheem Hines breakout week. We had Malcolm Brown running ahead in L.A. And then you had Miles Gaskin getting a lot more snaps than we thought. And he was kind of the forgotten man on waivers. You know, you still had to pay over a hundred or whatever to get him in FFPC, but it's not like you had to spend two, 300 typically to lock him up. And I don't have nearly enough Gaskin. We have him, I think in two leagues of our eight, but we could have, you know, looking back, you're like, why didn't I go hard after Gaskin? I remember Ben Gretsch had a tweet. Think like basically saying like, it's weird that we're not more hyped about this guy. Yeah. And, and now I'm like mad that we weren't more hyped. Like, why didn't we pounce on those snaps? But of course, Malcolm Brown was also getting a lot more snaps than we thought. Naeem Hines had a lot of production that week. So what are your thoughts on like trying to, how, like, how do we get better at week one waivers? Cause I think that's one of the key advantages. If you can, that's when these guys who have like six, seven, eight weeks of production are available. Yeah. I, I actually pounced on Gaskin quite a bit and it had a lot to do with reading some of the stuff Ben Gretsch had put out on him. And, but it's, it's tough for me to have the conversation around Hines and Brown because I, I straight up drafted Hines and Brown, <laughs> you know? And so I, yeah. um, I think the difference, if you're going to say there's a difference and you don't want to be too hindsight 2020, but I actually think there was more uncertainty with Gaskin and you wanted to embrace that uncertainty more where all these assumptions and these priors we had on Breda and Howard, those were our own priors. They weren't necessarily meaningful priors. And for Gaskin to come out and have a workhorse role right away was a little bit eye-opening. And for me, it was... I feel like old me would not have been on Gaskin and I'm slowly improving the waiver wire game, but it was just like, man, this is the profile you want, you know, in terms of the snaps he played, you know, where he was getting his rushing attempts, you know, Howard was a little bit annoying by the goal line, but barely playing and he was targeted. So I just kind of sucked it up and I've had a lot of years where I've just kind of wasted fab or held on to fab too much waiting for the perfect pickup. 
and put in those bids early and just was like, I'm going to buy these touches and hope it works out. And, you know, Miami ends up being better earlier than we thought they were. And those touches end up holding. And if you compare that to Hines and Brown, who I thought were good pickups too, but if you compare that to them, and I would have taken Hines over Gaskin, I'm sure at that point, you know, after the two touchdown yeah. opener. But if you're trying to draw a distinction, you know, we've seen Hines in that role before. I guess there was more excitement about the pass catching role with Rivers that like, oh my God, we're going to get checked on City all year long. Like that was the excitement with Hines. But with Malcolm Brown, it was like, we saw the same story with Malcolm Brown last year. You know, Henderson was banged up to start the year. You know, it was like, as a Brown owner, even I was like, well, this is good. I'm getting kind of the week that I hoped early, but I'm not overly excited about it. Yeah. Yeah, that that's interesting. I, I do... I, th- I think one of the things I want to push myself more is like spending more of that money early. And it's nice to sometimes have the, the fab late because to have the hammer at this point of the year, you know, for this past week to be able to drop a lot of money if you need, you know, Salvin Achman for, for the, the playoffs or whatever, for, or just to get into the playoffs, that can be pretty important. But kind of thinking about fab doing a little bit more of like a barbell approach where trying to spend more early and then if you can keep some through to the end that can be an advantage too um and maybe try to be a little bit more penny pinching in the middle weeks but um early too is probably you know there's added benefit to being aggressive early which is one your shelf even though we're you know we understand these aren't necessarily long-term bets but you have the potential to get someone that you're using the whole season and you're getting a lot of weeks out of so in a way if the fab values don't adjust for that, you know, you're paying for potentially 10 weeks of production versus five later on. So there's a benefit to that early. There's also the Gaskin benefit is, you know, people just have a lot of priors that they're held down by early in the season. And that lets you maybe get some values that, you know, if Gaskin became available at this point in the year or a guy like Gaskin, I mean, Ahmed, in a worse role than Gaskin and less long-term upside than Gaskin went for as much as Gaskin went week one. Like that's kind of insane when you think about it. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, it's a really good point. The, one of the other things I wanted to talk about in regards to uncertainty is like situations like we had with Jacksonville um, where James Robinson was available in some waiver runs. Like the FFPC has these waiver runs uh, if you draft early enough, that that happened before the season, and so in those leagues, Robinson was often available. Um, but typically, you know, as we drafted later, he was he was getting drafted. There was enough buzz about him, but you know, post Leonard Fournette cut, you know, looking back, it's like, well, someone's going to have value here, and I do. I think at the end, people got onto Robinson, but that type of situation where it's just like a bunch of unknowns. Um, and then I would say Washington, this one, I feel better about the way I played it where we went uh, just like Antonio Gibson laser focus was the guy, but you know, you're just like, well, is it going to be Gibson? Is it going to be Peterson? Is it going to be Peyton? Um, it's going to be McKissick. Hey, some of us have Bryce love shares, buddy. Oh, it's going to be Bryce Love. Yeah, we have we we drafted Bryce Love. <laughs> I forgot he existed. Um, 
you know, is who is it going to be here? And that often will keep the market off entirely. But there's different ways to handle these situations. Like one of the things that Evan Silva was doing with the Chiefs backfield was just taking Darwin Thompson, Daryl Williams, DeAndre Washington. If he could get all of them, he got all of them. And then it ended up being Daryl Williams. Didn't necessarily be, wasn't, all those guys kind of stunk. So it didn't end up being super valuable in that way. But I think that's a sharp strategy of, I will take all of these really cheap guys. And at the time, it feels like you're giving up, you're, there's massive opportunity cost because it's like, dude, there's so many awesome players in this range. But like looking back at your drafts now, you're like, there were not. There were not awesome yeah. players in this range. Almost all these players were terrible and you cut all of them. So you just realize like there is actually very little opportunity cost in this range. And we're probably not prioritizing these truly uncertain situations enough to where if one of these guys even becomes like, obviously James Robinson is just beyond our wildest expectations. But if one of them becomes like, you know, even a 12 point per game type dude, that's a huge win. Yeah, I'm pretty anti-handcuffing my early picks, but I think this is a completely different dynamic. You know, if you're handcuffing Zeke with Pollard, for example, you're investing so much equity in one spot, right? You know, Pollard isn't a, he isn't a potential add to your team. He's potentially making your team a little bit more robust if something happens to Zeke, but you're not really gaining profit. You're just insulating yourself from something bad happening a little bit. Whereas you're talking about two or three backs in the double digit rounds. Not only is the equity you're investing very minimal at that point, but it's not an insulation play. You know, it's more of a asymmetric play where you're just if you get the upside on one of them, it's just such a huge benefit to your team that that's something that I haven't done in the past that I'm coming around to a bit more. You know, it's, you have to look at it very differently from handcuffing an early running back, you know, this, yeah. the risk reward, the cost, the straight, it's completely different than that. And you're, panning you're, right. for gold. you're, you're, you're filling up your, your gold pan and you're sifting through, you're going to be cutting, maybe all of these guys, but you're just hoping there's a gold nugget in there. Yeah. And I think what happens is we, you know, when we don't do that is we force ourselves to predict something that's unpredictable and draft a bunch of Rykel Armstead or draft a yeah. bunch of, you know, for me, it was go. DeAndre Washington. You know, I, I uh -huh. you know, he ends up not even making the team and I didn't take any Daryl Williams you know, I didn't take any Darwin Thompson until late. Right. Um, and there, there, what, there wasn't enough confidence out there for me to be 100% DeAndre Washington and 0% Daryl Williams, right? You know, it was a guess. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I took a decent amount of Rykel Armstead, and I took a decent amount of Devin Azigbo, but I never really took any James Robinson. And it's like, dude, why not? Why didn't you take – and why were you taking – the thing I'm kicking myself on is – I should have been taking Armstead, Azigbo, and Robinson. And just like, because I was betting against Leonard Fournette before he was even cut. So just like, give yeah. me the guy, give me the back, whoever the backup is to, that's the crazy thing, right? It's like, before Fournette was cut, all of those guys 
were, I think, good picks in the sense that you're you're kind of doing the zero running back handcuff guy. But you could have just gone all three. And so it's not I'm not like kicking myself about James Robinson in particular because we didn't really have much training camp buzz or anything on him. There wasn't a ton. There was not like some report that I am aware of, at least that I missed, you know, early on. It's just that the situation was so uncertain and we could have taken a bit of a more robust approach with really, really low value picks. So if you're taking a robust approach with your high value picks, you're limiting the upside of your team. But if you take a robust approach with low value picks, you might actually be increasing the upside of your team. Right. Because it's, those guys are so low probability. And I mean, you can even math it out. It'd be interesting. You know, we talk about stacking and DFS, how, how the outcomes get lined up together. Right. In this case, it's the opposite, right? You know, the outcomes are actually not lined up with each other. So your probability of one of those outcomes occurring in this timeline is actually, you know, somewhat decent versus three completely uncorrelated players where, the amount of times they all miss, you know, might overlap quite a bit. So, yeah. you know, that's one way to think about it. It is hard though for me to say, oh, I was going to take all three of those guys when I've convinced myself that I like 20 backs <laughs> in these rounds every yeah, year. Yeah, it is. It is hard. Yeah, it is because like, you know, Jarek McKinnon and stuff hits for a few weeks and most week, most years it's going to be, you know, we there's the real worry that it's the Jets backfield. You know, a lot of years you're like, oh, I took LaMichael P. Ryan and, you know, I got all the Jets backs. <laughs> it's like, great. Yeah. That how that was no fun. And Jacksonville was a bad team. It wasn't obvious that you wanted Jacksonville's running back. Um, so, yes. like, the quick comparison, though, you know, the two situations that hit were brand new backfields. Jacksonville, Miami, brand new backfields. You know, the ones that didn't hit were kind of the ones where we, we sort of knew what was going on already um, a little bit. I mean, I guess you could say And, and Washington was a new, secret but... brand new back, backfield where we weren't sure if it was made brand new, but yeah. it turned out to be uh, Gibson and McKissick, both no additions. Um, what's hard for me, though, is if I'm doing a lot of best balls, I don't know if I can implement this strategy, but I don't know if I, I don't know if that's right or wrong. But because I took. I ended up with no James Robinson because I took a Zigbo, you know, or a lot around that time. And, you know, I, I definitely wasn't doubling up in best ball, but I don't know. I'm a little bit torn on that when you see even your best ball teams. You know, the case against it in best ball is that you you really do want to be able to hit as many guys as possible. I guess the case for it is I, I've got teams that got like six completely dead players. What does it matter if I guaranteed myself a dead player to improve my odds of one of the two? lottery tickets hitting yeah i think in best ball you it, it would be tougher for me to want to do like drafting all three of these guys type of thing but you could definitely go two and you, there's more opportunity cost because those late round wide receiver flyers you know they get in your lineup and that, and that can help you but um and you can't churn people off for waivers so certainly it's a little bit of a different game but yeah, I think maybe we're probably a little bit too confident about what those late round picks are going to do in best ball, same as we are in in redraft. Yeah. Uh, something else you went through that one team with Keenan Allen and Stefan Diggs, and, and something that stuck out to me about you know embracing uncertainty a little bit is 
and and you know again then with Gaskin and James Robinson is these situations that are somewhat new we shy away from you know we we look at the downside more than the upside and when the cost is completely accounting for that downside it seems like a really good purchase you know i didn't play any keenan allen i don't want to get too hindsight 2020 on allen because the fluke tie rod injury yeah parlayed with herbert being really good was like crazy but you are talking about a guy that was a third round pick the year before um and then Stefan Diggs going to Buffalo, it's like he has a more inaccurate quarterback, but the targets almost can't go down. And like I was kind of overthinking the targets. And luckily, you know, that's a guy Gretsch got me on late, and I, I end up getting some digs, have him on my really good NFFC silver bullet team. But you know, these guys that can earn the volume and there's external factors that we're worried about as to why we're not drafting them. I think once the cost flips, you know, even DeAndre Hopkins a little bit earlier, but all these guys were discounted from where they would have been in their current situations, right? You know, even Hopkins was going at the two, three turn when that was, you know, a one, two pick Diggs and Allen go five, six, even seven when they were three, four picks. So that's something that's sticking out to me. Obviously, I think if you said, even though they would have paid off third, fourth round picks, I don't think. At that point, I think you are worried about the systemic risk and shouldn't be buying them. But the market seems to be overreacting to these systemic risks when sometimes the opposite can be true. Like there, there are systemic risks, but there's also systemic opportunities. Yeah, and and it's coming a year after Odell Beckham failed, you know, spectacularly in his first year with the Cleveland Browns, but there wasn't really a discount with Beckham. And so, if anything, there was the opposite because everyone, myself included, just assumed wheels up. You know, Baker had yeah. that great rookie season. Um, I don't remember the exact draft cost, but there, yeah, the, I don't believe there was. He was I believe he's like wide receiver three or four. You know, he was very high. Um, I, I'm not sure. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, like where in drafts he was going, but it, my guess is probably in the second round. You're right. He was. And if you look at it, Obviously, we would have been disappointed if we drafted him in four, five, six, and he was as bad as he was. But and like and the opposite is true. If we drafted Diggs this year in round three, we would have been happy. But we, you, you, I think the market, you know, what is the market reacting to more—the optimism or the pessimism? And yeah, if you can buy when the market's overreacting on the pessimism, and you know, maybe hold off when the market's overreacting on the optimism, that might be the right move macro. It's always difficult because again, we take these micro approaches and, you know, we convince ourselves, yeah, Cleveland's going to just roll. Um, but again, yeah, the market NFL seasons, the market was very certain about how that was going to play out. And with Odo Beckham and with Stefan Diggs, the market was very certain that, you know, Stefan Diggs was kind of taking a step back here that Josh Allen was going to be a bad fit for him. And so you got, it was an uncertain situation that the market felt pretty certain about. And so one way or the other, whether it's the Odo Beckham, that would be a fade or the Stefan Diggs, you know, jumping on it. I think those are situations to, to just identify. I think another thing was like, was with COVID related, you know, like we weren't, there were certain ways to play this season and, 
you know, when you're factoring in COVID, one of them was to like fade rookies and new additions. And I think that made sense, but that quickly got baked into price. So it's like, does that, what's the prior? The prior is, yeah, you definitely want to fade guys in new situations and rookies because this is, we never had an off season like this. But then once that became, I think ultimately pretty overpriced in, in the ADPs, then it's okay to run counter to that. And I think it's kind of like, it, well, you tell me, but is it similar to like ownership in, in a GPP where you're like, yeah, th- I agree this running back play is is a, a slightly worse play, but I'm getting him at sub 10% ownership. You guys are all flocking to this other dude. Yeah, you know, I know Oversat and Matic have their bit on the wide receiver cornerback matchups, but that's something that, you know, if a player is going to be low owned in a tough wide receiver cornerback matchup, I throw it out the window, you know, because I know the player has talent. So I'm getting the appropriate upside relative to the risk I'm taking there. Whereas if a guy's going to be super chalky and has a very difficult wide receiver cornerback matchup, maybe, maybe I think that matter. Not, not that I think it matters more, whether the ownership is there or not, isn't going to dictate whether or not it matters, but maybe I gamble on that mattering a bit more because now the upside is in him doing poorly. And uh, of course we don't have ownership in redraft, but we do have the ADP cost and that's, you know, your, your link to, to ownership there, you know, instead it's ADP cost. If the ADP cost is baking in all of the risk, then, you, you know, why not gamble that the risk ends up not mattering, but if you're paying right. full price, then it's like, there's only downside. So it just comes uh, out to, and, and I've quoted Ben Gretsch a lot, but I've had a lot of good conversations with him about approaching redraft this year and his, you know, mantra to a certain extent is small misses, big hits. Yeah. You know, and that's Sean Siegel does that. That's a, that's a big theme in his writing as well. And that's essentially what you're doing um, by letting the market dictate the cost and then taking the emotion out of it as far as why. And it's important to understand why the risk is there or else you can kind of like run yourself in circles. But as long as you're cognizant of what the risk is and what this player would be priced at, if that risk wasn't there, you can make sound decisions. Yeah, let's... Let's shift the the conversation a little bit over to trends, which is, I think, another really key part of this uncertainty discussion, because um, you were saying you'd had an interesting conversation with Ben about identifying some of these trends. And for those that don't know, Ben does this really awesome newsletter, Stealing Signals, that dives into all of these, like, you know, go, looks into the weekly stats um, for each game and tries to identify some of these micro trends and kind of what happened week to week um you were talking with him about ways that that kind of stuff can apply to dfs for season long yeah and my process each week is i kind of look at the broader you know maybe more obvious volume statistics for players snaps played targets carries some of that's because it's the most easily accessible information but you know Josh Hermsmeyer has done some studies that basically say at the end of the day the biggest indicator of future targets is past targets you know and a lot of this stuff in between can be somewhat noisy and that sets me up really well where I think I'm getting the bulk of the signal and then I can read guys like Ben Gretsch's stealing signals Dwayne McFarland's utilization report on ETR And they kind of do all this dirty work where they find things that are a little bit more micro 
that we might want to start baking in the moves. So I, that's my approach. Now, as far as how the application is different from DFS to season long, in DFS, you'll notice a lot of times throughout the years, we think, oh, you know, Tyler Lockett's emerging over DK Metcalf. Oh, no, no, but it's DK Metcalf over Tyler Lockett. And we, we saw this with the Chargers backfield a lot too. And people sometimes swing too much on like a one week, oh, the snaps were up. And then we act as if that means the snaps are con- going to continue to rise. And that's not usually the case. So you want to be careful because you want the most accurate projections as possible. And there's a lot of opportunity cost in DFS if you're moving too quickly or swaying too much on the beginning of trends, right? You know, because you can play anybody you want. So if you're playing someone, you're not playing someone else. And it's very difficult. Now, if you look at the season long side of things, if you find, you know, Jacob Hollister was the most recent one where a couple of weeks ago, his snaps were way up and Disley's fell, Olsen's fell, but a seven target game out of Hollister tight ends terrible this year in season long, picking that guy up at the back end of your roster is very minimal opportunity cost. And if he hits, having that viable tight end for your playoff run is super meaningful. So the risk reward is completely different being early on a trend in season long versus DFS. There are of course some situations where DFS, where we do like to be early hitting on Deandre Swift early was very beneficial in GPPs. Doesn't look like he's going to play this week, but he literally went from unowned a week ago to was going to be the second chalkiest running back on the entire slate this week. So I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all in DFS, but you have to be a bit more careful in DFS than you do in season long because the risk reward dynamic is different between the two games. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I would say on Dynasty, it's kind of this sort of an interesting mix where you have, you know, you don't want to just chase around trends because if you end up dropping guys who are you know much more valuable long term or trading them away more likely for guys who are just kind of going through hot streaks you're going to lose a lot of your team's value very quickly but at the same time you have to be early on these rookie wide receiver breakouts on changing running back situations on getting off old guys who look like they are dust you know i think all of that stuff is really really important in dynasty but you also don't want to chase the noise. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but you just talked about the opposite side of the spectrum with old guys being dust. You know, like had a lot of conversations in the ETR Slack this week about projecting AJ Green versus T Higgins. You know, mm-hmm. that's something that is a pretty obvious way. The, the direction you're going in season long and in dynasty is pretty obvious on those two players. You know, you could kind of care less exactly what's going to happen this week you know where the long-term trend is going on those two players whereas dfs you do have to bake in what you know when that trend occurs matters more you know not just knowing that it's going to happen eventually i don't care if it happens in two weeks or six weeks in dynasty is very different than you know aj green's 3600 this week and last time he stunk he came out and had 11 targets and 13 targets the, the following two weeks, you know, like, so it, is it a trend now and it wasn't a trend earlier or, you know, those things are kind of difficult and it's still important to figure it out in DFS because you've got two players that are 
right on that cusp of being good plays based on sort of how you see that playing out in the short term. Yeah. And I'll do a shameless plug here. I, I do a show called stat chasing, which is very much in the weeds of the type of um, micro trend stuff you're, you're trying to do. I do that. It's on YouTube on Tuesdays. And one of the things I talked about there is that AJ green had an eight out of 17.8. And so this week, um, and I actually wonder, you know, on these one of these micro trends, like is AJ Green now, are they just saying, you know what, take the top off the defense, you stink. If you get targets, they're going to help keep the defense honest, or maybe we'll actually connect on one. And uh, we're not going to waste a bunch of targets to you that, you know, could go to, to T. Higgins and to Tyler Boyd, who, you know, combined for 17 targets to AJ Green's five last week. So, that's like one of those little micro trends that we're talking about where, you know, AJ Green does have the deepest eight out of the three on the season, but not to this like massive extent where he's playing, you know, almost like a, a Jalen Guyton level deep threat role or a Mike Williams level deep threat role. He hasn't really played that all season, but that was one of those little micro trends where I'm going, hmm, maybe AJ Green is actually kind of interesting this week in DFS because if he's like a take the top off guy, and he only needs to get there, you know, he's cheap enough where he only needs like one or two big plays. And if that's the role he's in, then he's kind of interesting. But he had an 8.2 ADOT the week before and a 5.6 ADOT the week before that. So it could all just be. Yeah, you just noise. don't you just don't know. And you kind of have to level yourself off a bit more in DFS. And, you know, he might never connect on a big play again, but a lot of people are also kind of assuming that he's gone over this year. And it's like, well, if he connects on even just one of them, he's had a couple games where he could have had big performances. So it's, it's definitely tough, but because your risk rewards different, you know, the way you're treating it is, is different. You know, this week in DFS, the way I'm treating T Higgins and AJ green, isn't reflective of the way I'm probably treating them in season long and in, and especially in dynasty. Yeah. And so on more of the DFS stuff, like let's talk a little bit to close things out here about like dart throws, GPP type of, of situations where we just have, we just don't know. So taking uncertainty in terms of like, for example, uh, Drew Dinkmeyer had his Cam Akers call a few weeks back. Didn't That one didn't pan out, but it, it made sense because the value of the backfield was very high. We weren't sure who was going to get the running back snaps there had it been cam Akers, that would have been a really really valuable call and the type of stuff he's doing the the mass multi-entry type of gpp tournaments deandre swift was you know peter Overzet famously called uh, a few <laughs> weeks back <laughs> you know one of the best calls of the entire season so congrats to pete for that um and then you know this week i would say Taysom hill is one of these types of dudes where it's like who knows how it's going to break out you know but uh certainly there's there's upside he's kind of like a dart throw quarterback or dart throw stacking candidate but it also kind of makes you feel queasy how do you approach those types of just like total just a lot of uncertainty are those sharp plays are they just donkey plays yeah i had said to you uh before this show it reminds me i was watching do you ever watch hot ones you ever seen that show where mm, they eat the spicy no. chicken wings and get interviewed? Well, Kristen Bell was on there. <laughs> that sounds like a very Buffalo show. 
Uh, <laughs> it's pretty popular actually, okay. but it's um it's funny to watch the people like re I mean they really suffer towards the end. Like they they get some pretty spicy wings, but Kristen Bell was on there and she was in the in the show The Good Place and the guy kind of asks her the good place if you haven't seen it deals a lot with like ethical philosophy and whatnot even though it's a sitcom and he was asking her what she took away from the show if anything and she she talked about moral relativism which is kind of like each situation and the context of it you know there's not one right answer blanket answer across the board and i think of this a lot with these uncertain situations where i might seem like a hypocrite because i might say yeah chase that uncertainty don't chase that uncertainty but it really is important to get important to get a grasp of a few different things. You know, one, what's sort of like the base projection for the player, you know, two, what's the range of outcomes in terms of not necessarily the final points they're going to score, but even the inputs we would feed projections. So, you know, Deandre Swift, we really liked last week because the way we viewed it was one low ownership two no matter what, he's getting high value touches, right? He's getting receptions. He's getting goal line work. Three, the uncertainty then is the overall volume goes up. You know, it's probably not going down. So your risk is that he has a bad game because he doesn't have a total touch, a lot of touches. And we've seen him there. We touted him weeks. He didn't do well for the same reasons. Um, so, but if you look at the combination of all that, there seems to be more reward than risk there, you know, and there's some substance to that. You're not just flailing in the wind at a complete dart throw. And of course the report came out Sunday morning that he was starting, which made us feel better, but that, you know, even prior to that, you know, that was sort of the breakdown. Uh, you bring up the cam acres situation. That was one where in a large field tournament, there's absolutely no ownership, which is rare for a player that has upside and, Coming back from injury, we just don't know how it's going to break down, but we do know that this backfield scored a lot of fantasy points. So you can see where you'd buy it there. But in a small field tournament, unlike with Swift, we wouldn't buy it because we also know there's a lot of downside where he could just not play at all. Right. You know, whereas Swift, we didn't have that concern. So you wouldn't you wouldn't have played Cam Makers in a small field tournament because you don't need that. You wouldn't have needed that huge home run and that risk was detrimental i felt like so you bring it you bring it back to Taysom this week what makes it difficult is one he's going to be owned probably and let, you know let's look at it more through DraftKings and fanduel because fanduel is just a joke with him being the min price tight end uh, oh i hadn't heard that he's a min price tight end <laughs> no, <I'm kidding>. no, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you got me i've been arguing with dink about how owned he's going to be on fanduel so it's a it's a touchy subject for me right now so you i was kind it. of like upset for the half second i believed you had not heard that so now i feel better <laughs> i would have had to be out of the country for the week to right heard. everyone's been tweeting about it before he was even named the starter but <laughs> on DraftKings, you know what's tough is he's going to be owned i think a decent bit um and again, on showdown sites, we've had a lot of situations like this that have been uncertain. And I always say that you know, there's two inputs, right? There's or two types of volatility. The first type is just natural. The efficiency runs bad or good in a game or the volume runs a little bit off what we expected. That's one type. The other type is we just don't know what the inputs are going to be. And we're purely guessing. And that's the type that's like most important to take advantage of. Yet people take advantage of it the least because they're kind of so tied to projections now. 
and what they see. And it goes back to wanting something tangible to hold on to and say, oh, well, he was projected for this when I played him. So that's the volatility you really, when there's opportunities you want to take advantage of. So with Taysom Hill, when you're looking at it, it's does Jameis Winston end up you know, throwing a decent amount of passes in this game, even though he's not starting? You know, that that's one type of risk. The other type of risk is what percentage of carries does it get? It could be really high. You know, this could be Cam Newton-esque carries. Um, three, you know, not just with Taysom Hill, but with the other players, how many plays does this offense run? Do they play slower and super run heavy now? You know, what does that do to Michael Thomas? And, and again, we've been talking a lot too, is the market's taking into account these. So the market's like seeing Taysom Hill and they're like, oh, rushing upside, cheap quarterback. This is awesome. They're going to play a ton of them. And then the opposite is sort of happening probably with Kamara and Michael Thomas, where they're like, I can't touch these guys now. So you know, that's sort of the interesting dynamic where we would kind of make you want to say, well, there's a lot of uncertainty. Let's maybe, maybe we should be buying uh, these historically very high ceiling players in Kamara and Thomas that people aren't going to play on a week where there's not a lot of great plays in a game environment that looked pretty good if you remove the Taysom side of things. You know, that's sort of our Keenan Allen, Stefan Diggs systemic risk thing. So mm-hmm. um, that's a lot of rambling without necessarily no, that was, that was a really super definable point. But well, it, it reminds me a little bit of the, you know, that that total, like just we don't know the inputs to use to create projections. Reminds me a little bit of the San Francisco 49ers wide receiver situation a few weeks back when Rishi James had that big week. 100%. And, Trent Taylor was the guy that was projected a little bit higher and Richie James had the breakout week, but it's like, and I think you mentioned somewhere that, you know, that was just kind of a perfect time to fade projections. Yeah. And it's hard for me to say that because I'm the one doing my best to make these projections good. But the truth is there are times when we are guessing, we don't have any data on Taysom Hill as a regular season starter, how the Saints offense is going to operate, you know, and no one else does either. So those are, and again, it's funny because the market sometimes does the, again, does the opposite. That's when they rely on the projections too much when really that's one of the rare few times where I'd say, go with your gut, you know, because you don't have as much, you have a lot more to get. You're more likely to be right in a contrarian way than you would be on just randomly saying, well, I don't think Dalvin cook's going to do that well this week. Right. If you're fading Dalvin cook's projection at home, you know what we've seen this season, knowing what we know about the way the Vikings want to play everyone being basically healthy. It's not that he can't fail, but you know, there's, and you know, you got to factor in ownership and price and all that, but you know, you would never bench Dalvin cook in a season long league because you had a bad feeling about it. The projection on Cook is not wrong, you know. Right. It's it, it might not work out that way because things don't get distributed evenly, but the projection's not wrong. When you can imagine if you could get a player whose projection was wrong by five points, and then you add in the regular volatility on top of that, right? And then you add in the ownerships not following that. You know, that's the Richie James play. The projection's wrong to start by five points, then he runs hot in addition to that. You know, that's when you, you re- like those situations don't come along all that often throughout the season. You know, that let me, let me just drill down a little bit on what you're saying. Cause I, I get what you're saying, but I just want to make sure everyone else 
understand your point because it's you're saying like the projection being wrong you know you could say means like you had you know i don't know what you have dalvin cook projected for like 20 points or something more 24 points 24 points so more so okay so 24 points and now he he only scores 19 points so therefore your projection was quote-unquote wrong but what you mean is i've projected the mean outcome the average outcome of what dalvin cook is going to do that is not wrong whether he scores 19 or 27 or whatever, the projection was not wrong. Or even if he gets gets hurt or something, the projection was not wrong. There is variance built into all of these projections. But you can get in some cases where the variance is an added bonus on top of us just being completely wrong about what the average outcome was. Yeah, I mean, if we redid Richie James's projection for that Thursday night game, it would have been a lot higher. You know, like, like the, and there's sometimes where you just don't, you know, I don't know, maybe let's say Dalvin and Madison ended up splitting carries 50 50 this week. Someone right. could say the projection was wrong. They'd be right. But realistically, we have like to a high degree of confidence the mean breakdown of the backfield split there. We didn't have that with Richie James. You know, we were guessing. Um, and and people sometimes are putting as much confidence into the guesswork projections as the ones that we're super confident about. And the ones where you could be off significantly, again, they don't happen a lot, but when they do happen, it is you know worth taking into account. I don't know if the Saints are quite there yet because especially with like the cost on Thomas and Kamara, you know, but if there if there is a situation this week with Hill, I think it's you know, the, the market is playing Hills probably going to be the guy and run for all these points. And they're not playing, you know, they're, they're just super concerned about Michael Thomas. Um, and the projections are taking that into account that, you know, his strength is getting fed 15 times and catching 13 of those balls. You know, is that realistically going to happen with some combination of Taysom Hill and Jameis Winston? And it's interesting because we, we may have two of these situations, the other one being PJ Walker and Carolina. Um, where we don't really know how that offense is going to operate if he ends up starting. Yeah. And the Mike Davis one's a little interesting too, where what if Mike Davis goes back to what he did the first couple of weeks, McCaffrey was out when he was like 90% of snaps. He's a smash play on this week with a lot of uncertainty at running back out of sight of Dalvin cook. Right. Uh, and he's probably not going to be played. Now our projection doesn't assume that I don't think it's going to be that most of the evidence says that Samuel has stolen some stuff and they're scaling him back. But, you know, the, there's a little bit more input volatility as to what we're assuming in terms of percentage of carries, percentage of targets with a guy like that versus a guy like Dalvin Cook. All right. Well, I think we just discovered a new buzzword, input volatility. I like it. <laughs> I feel like we can close out with that. Next week, we'll be covering 50 minutes on input volatility. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, for Mike Leone, I'm Pat Corain. Uh, follow Mike on Twitter at Two Hats One Mike. I'm on Twitter at Pat Corain, and all of her stuff is at Established Run. Check that out, and we will see you next week.